Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. January 30th, 2016, episode number 89. Snow much fun. Walk the streets of New York City and you'll sense that there is an order to the chaos. Some of it is societal norms and much of it is nonverbal communication that is the vibe of how to do it. Strangers to the city will be scoffed for a period of time if they get things wrong, but in time, even those strangers can assimilate and unless you are a true city person with the program, so to speak, there will always be that little bit of hesitation or angst on how to ride the subway or approach people on a crowded street. Simply, we take communications for granted and it's a complex and sophisticated process which can't be underestimated. I'm Kevin England, your host, and I'm so glad you're here. I shared that little tidbit because our feature this episode is about pheromones and how bees communicate. Given the chemical, scent-based nature that is one aspect of bee communication, it is hard for us humans to understand and comprehend to get completely. Fact is, as long as we've studied bees, there are still things we don't know or fully understand, and that is the fun of it. In this episode, we'll start off with bee pheromones, what they are, how they are used by bees, and what the differences are in the role-based orchestration of communication that occurs inside of a honeybee colony. Our second feature of the episode is along the notion of supplemental feeding, not sugar, no, pollen substitutes, and specifically, what about the practice for springtime? In addition to our features, We'll give you some coverage of the Shark Tank episode review of Bee Thinking Company, a source for a beekeeping book titles, corn syrup and fondant, is it safe? The discovery of bee space, being shrewd, that's a play on words, and an insulation expedition. Before we dive in though, let me get this out of the way up front. I'll probably repeat myself during the episode, but for housekeeping's sake, any references called out in the program can be found in our show notes. Visit www.bkcorner.org and reference the show notes for episode number 89. Comments, questions, or simply saying hello can be sent to kevin at bkcorner.org. When you write in, please tell me how to pronounce your name and where you're contacting me from. So let's get things kicked off with the Local Hive Report. The Local Hive Report. The title of this episode is Snow Much Fun. A week ago today, we had the single largest snowfall on record for a 24-hour period in our region. Fortunate for commerce, it came on a Friday night and was all through by Sunday, Sunday afternoon. And things were clear enough for most of us to go back to work on Monday. I guess I could have preferred a snow day if it occurred during the week, but our networks and infrastructure at work are robust enough that we'd be working from home and not taking a day off, and I find that a bit less productive, as I'm more productive when I'm in face-to-face with my clients and team 
So I'm well enough happy to get into the office. Sharon and Brian's school were closed on Monday, and while she's working on getting rid of a bout of bronchitis at the moment, she wandered out in the snow on Monday and over to the one hive we have we keep on our property. Her observations were interesting. She didn't see the bees flying on that day, but there were three distinct sets of footprints at the front of the hive. One for sure was a raccoon. The other two could have been a few things, and we do have some research to do. I suspect by the description, and we both agreed, that one of them might have been a possum, and the other seemed like it could have been a dog, maybe even our Julia. We do have a recent bout lately of coyotes running around, which is something we never have seen in our area, but they have been spotted on numerous occasions. So it's hard to tell, but the good news is there's evidence that that hive is still alive, and we're almost to that area of the year where I breathe a sigh of relief once the colony gets to the mid to late February range. If you can make it there, you can usually nurse any hive through March and April into the forage. As to the conditions of the hives over at the farm, I can't say for sure. I drove behind the church, which is in front of the farm fields, and into the parking lot and could see the hives, but the snow was too deep to get back there, and I was in work clothes with work shoes on and work pants. I wasn't going to go traverse back there. I have to assume that they're good to go, but I have to put some high boots on and trek back there sometime this week just to be sure. I have no reason to expect that they are not in a good state. However, I would like to get back there to make sure that they're good to go from a hive heft test just to see where they are from a food state. And I don't anticipate that I'll have to put any fondant or feed on them, but I need to make sure that they are. The good news is I could see them from the parking lot of the church and they're secure and upright and they have their roofs on. So they're probably doing what I am at this point, anticipating spring. So that's it for the local hive report. Let's go ahead and dive head in to our first feature. Segment number one is simply entitled pheromones, because that's what it's all about after all. There's so much to be said about the honeybee chemical scent system based on pheromones. That bees can operate as one large unit has much to do with the scent-based management of the colony. In this segment, I'm going to scratch the surface of bee of the bee pheromone system by introducing the basics of the topic. I'll talk about the categories and locations of the glands that release the compounds, and I'll distinguish the differences between workers, queens, and drones when it comes to scents emitted by the bees and their functions. First, let's start with some of the basics. One of the best descriptions comes from the ever-insightful archives of the George Emery pink pages. George described it in this way. Pheromones are a chemical messenger secreted by one honeybee that elicits a behavioral or physiological response by another honeybee. They are produced as a liquid and transmitted by direct contact in their liquid form or as a gas. Gas is synonymous for how we might smell a pretty perfume or the undesirable odor of a skunk for us humans. 
Honeybees use pheromones to communicate with each other in the same way that humans use our voice. This communication is primarily used for the interactions of members of the same colony, and it is thought, but at the time that he wrote this not proven yet, that the colony is regulated by chemicals of the pheromones produced by the queen. There's a whole sidebar here. There's a whole litany on that that has advanced since George wrote this, but that's not the aim of this, so I'm not going to go there. Just know that uh, there's plenty of information if you want to look that up as to how the queen and or the colony slash brood control what goes on inside. It's not literally all about the queen anymore. We know that worker bees and drones produce pheromones as well as respond to pheromones. And equally, equally, we know that the queen produces and uses pheromones considerably more than the other two castes. He went on further to describe it in this pink paper that I was reading down below in this way. Pheromones are not single chemicals. And he wrote, unfortunately, but rather a complex mixture of numerous chemicals in various different percentages of the total. Further, one single pheromone may have multiple functions and, in contrast, a single behavioral response probably involves more than one pheromone. I'll paraphrase that saying... The bees use the chemicals and more or less of it in mixture with other chemicals that they exude to get certain reactions out of it. But it might be the same chemical mixed with others in various reactions. We'll get to this a little bit more. But I wanted to just say that I cleaned some of those up. I updated a few of those notations to make it easier to translate in this audible form. But much of it is word for word from George's notes. And if... If I had to write a summary, well, I think it would be tough to top the one I just read. With that as a good primer, let's explore the topic a bit further. Let's go ahead and explore and talk about the functions of pheromones. So the first thing is pheromones are caste-specific, or if you like to think of it, role-specific purposes for a type of bee. Say a worker uses a certain pheromone for one thing, drones another, and of course queens have their own languages of scent. Some might get hung up on my statement that pheromone use is caste-specific, so let me take a moment on that. The word caste was our term of the episode way back in A Package Deal, episode number 14. Back in that episode, I described it as it applied to bees as they changed through their lifespan of their caste type. You can think of it this way. Worker bees stay in their lane. Queens do what queens do, and drones, of course, do what drones do. And workers, well, they do what they do, each of them performing a sequence of different tasks within their caste or their lane. An abbreviated set of worker castes, tasks, are cell cleaners, nurse bees, food stores, foragers. And that's kept in the worker class. Drones don't do that stuff. Queens don't do that stuff. All of those activities, queens, workers, drones, use pheromones to communicate specifically how to do those things. 
And I'll spend the next few minutes breaking this down. So as I said a moment ago, there's one thing I want you to know going in is that bees from different castes, queen, worker, drone, share common traits and pheromones, but mix them for different tasks within their caste. Yeah, I know. It's getting a smidge complicated. Listen, there's no test at the end of this, and hopefully in a few minutes you'll be following along with this short primer that I start in, so let's keep going. Pheromones. Pheromone communication in honeybee is known to function for these things. Mating, alarm response, defense, orientation, colony recognition, and integration of colony activities. The simple way to think about the cast slash pheromone communication thing is to put it in its lanes. They play a part in interaction between queens and worker bees, interaction between queens and drones, interaction between worker bees and other worker bees, interaction between worker bees and drones, and even interactions between adults and brood. As I think about this, it's not too hard to picture that a certain scent will stimulate you for something. If I were sitting here and smelled dinner was ready, I'd be hungry and go upstairs and get something to eat. That is an example of a pheromone that could be triggered by the larvae to the worker bees to say, feed me. Not more complicated than that. So we know that worker bees use a scent-based system, but where do the pheromones come from? They are released from the diverse exocrine glands of either workers or queens, and of course drones. Honeybees have one of the most complex pheromonal communication systems, possessing 15 known glands that produce an array of compounds. Exocrine gland secretion show an age-based relationship association with task. What do I mean by that? It means that certain glands that provide scents from bees are not 100% available all the time. And the reason being, some of them are age-based. So, for example, the hypopharyngeal and wax glands become enlarged in young workers shortly after they emerge reaching and maintaining their maximum size at 5 to 15 days of age. This coincides with brood-rearing and comb-building tasks that these workers are doing. After these two glands diminish in size, an output of the gland transitions to other tasks, like foraging and stinging, for example. Another example is the sting-alarm pheromone. Sting-alarm pheromone production is low in young bees, and rises in the worker as it ages. Now that makes sense. Inside the hive, they don't have to do a lot of stinging. The defense is left to the guard bees, which are a little bit older, and to the foragers who are outside and need a stinger. So glandular expression is most likely endocrine-related. Now hold on a minute, right? Endocrine versus exocrine I just mentioned endocrine-related. Let me take a minute to talk about these different types of glands. There's a difference in the way the glands on a bee's work, and they are often categorized by endocrine versus exocrine. Exocrine means glands that produce materials that are secreted outside of the body. 
I want to relate this to exoskeleton. It makes me think outside. For example, bees have salivary glands, and they use it for different purposes, which I'll explain in a moment. But you can guess that saliva is used externally of the bee and not inside its body. In contrast, the endocrine system is related to chemicals, usually hormones, that are internally circulated. The honeybee's endocrine system contains a number of ductless glands, producing hormone secretions which are released directly into the hemolymph. You can think of that as bee blood. And affect bee growth, development, molting, cast determination, age polyethism, and glandular development. In a moment, I'm going to talk about pheromones and their types and use. But first, I want to talk about one more primer thing for you to know, that there are two categories of pheromones. First, there are releaser pheromones. Releaser pheromones, when received, cause rapid change in the behavior of the recipient. Releaser pheromones trigger an almost immediate behavioral response from the receiving bee, and it's that immediacy that makes it releaser versus the second type, which is a primer pheromone. Primer pheromones have a relatively slow and long-term effect on the physiology and behavior of the recipient. Primer pheromones cause the receiver bee to exhibit an altered behavioral response at some future time. As an example, the queen releases a certain primer pheromone that causes the colony to behave in a way when it comes to swarming, and the signal might be produce a new queen. In a normal colony operation, not in a swarming state though, the queen is exuding a primer pheromone to signal her presence, and this will constrain the workers from thinking they need to make another queen simply by it being present. On the flip side of that, when the queen's not there, that chemical signal is not there, and the behavioral response, not the altering one, but the normal behavioral response is build a queen when that pheromone is not present. It's a cool kind of push-pull system. And it comes from the queen primer pheromone system. So now that you have a taste of releaser and primer pheromones, let's go to the types of pheromones and their purposes. But first I want to share a disclaimer of sorts. I'm going to say that you are probably clear that I'm not a professor of honeybee anatomy and exocrine systems. I've cobbled this resource from the work of others. And I'm not averse to saying that there's a possibility that might have mixed some of it up or misinterpreted what I read. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. And while I try to do my best to put it all together, your mileage may vary. With topics that are of this ilk especially, I get a little shy wondering in time if I don't have a faux pas or two in some of these segments, and someday some professor of entomology is going to call me out for episode number something, and I'll tuck my tail between my legs. <laughs> I know it's possible that the Dunning-Kruger could be in full effect and have this guidance for you about these things that I share with you. Look, follow along, but don't use this as your study guide for your next final exam on the Master Beekeeping. Find a more plausible source if you're doing that and follow that as the gospel. Buy books on anatomy and such. I think I have it right. I could be blissfully ignorant to the errors in my way, so please don't harpoon me if I twisted a few things somewhere along the way. 
I always wonder if I go back and listen to previous episodes, if things that I know now will tell me what I did wrong back then. So this particular primer feature was meant to be an overview. Okay, let's get back to our regularly scheduled program here. Types of pheromones and their purpose will start with queen pheromones. I'm going to talk about four types of pheromones associated with queens. On a side note, and as I said before, some of these pheromones are in workers and drones too. For example, all bees have mandibular pheromones. But the ones I'm going to talk about, to mention right now, have a queen slant to them. And I'm going to cover them in a particular order. Number one is queen mandibular pheromone, or QMP. It exhibits a cast specificity in accordance with its involvement in queen-worker interactions. The gland is located inside the head above the base of the mandible. It opens through a short duct at the base of the mandible. It could serve as both the primer and releaser pheromone regulating the worker activity and its physiology. Under queen-right conditions, the composition of the queen mandibular gland secretion usually differs from that of workers, possessing a series of hydroxy and oxo fatty acids that are absent from worker secretions. It inhibits queen rearing as well as ovarian development in worker bees. It's also a strong sexual attractant for drones when on nuptial flights. And it's critical to worker recognition of the presence of a queen in a hive, some of these primer things I just spoke of. It also serves to promote stability of a swarm or a calming influence to the natural excitement of the swarm activity within a colony. The second pheromone type is the queen retinue pheromone or QRP. Important for the retinue attraction of worker bees around their queen it serves as a reminder to refer the behavior of having attendance around the queen. So we talk about the queen's court that's referred to as the retinue response, and they groom and, and feed and take care of whatever the queen's needs are. Third pheromone is the tarsal pheromone. It's also referred to as the footprint pheromone. I like that. That's cool. I never knew about this. It's the oily secretion of the queen's tarsal glands that is deposited on the comb as the queen walks across them. So, taking a little sidebar here for a moment, when I walked a dog recently, I was amazed at how, um, how she could follow the deer tracks through the yard. And then recently what I noticed is the deer tracks through the snow, she sniffs those, and my guess is this is the... the deer equivalent of the footprint pheromone and you could imagine that dogs and other animals cats and so on have them i've watched a critter walk across the yard and then i've watched the dog go outside and follow that literal path hours after the critter walked across the yard i'm assuming that the bees have this same sense too as the queen is traversing the comb Okay, let's keep going. Number four, egg-laying pheromone. This is not to be confused with the doofer's gland pheromone, which I'm going to talk about in a second. This particular pheromone helps nurse bees distinguish between eggs laid by the queen and eggs laid by laying workers. Okay, finish the four for queen. Let's go to worker pheromones. 
they function for orientation, alarm, and defense, and other purposes, but those three are the primary. The alarm pheromone is released from the co I knew I was going to mess this up. The Koshevnikov, K-O-S-C-H-E-V-N-I-K-O-V gland near the sting shaft. Someone from Russia must have come up with this. This is the pheromone that's said to smell like bananas. And you don't go out after having eaten a banana into the apiary because this is alarm pheromone and you don't want to get stung. Koshevnikov, Koshevnikov. Koshevnikov. Say that three times fast. Number two is the brood recognition pheromone. It's responsible for preventing worker bees from bearing offspring in a colony that still has developing young. So both larvae and pupae emit a brood recognition pheromone or simply brood pheromone. The components of the brood pheromone have shown to vary with age of the developing bee. Brood pheromone can serve as a releaser cue to the nurse bees from brood to cap the cell. So they release a pheromone that says, I'm ready to cap the cell. I'm going to grow inside here. That's cool. It also has a role in simulation of pollen collection. Think about it this way. If there's brood, brood release a pheromone, It they need to be fed a lot of protein. So they're releasing something that causes the workers to trigger the foragers to bring back more pollen. Brood recognition pheromone, also to the primer effect, the presence of brood pheromone. What do I mean by that? Brood pheromone has been noted to inhibit ovarian development in worker bees and help nurse bees distinguish worker larvae from drone larvae and pupae. It has the ability to deter ovary development and it is said to be more potent than the queen herself who is deterring this ovary development. Its presence also plays a role in stimulating development of the hypopharyngeal glands, which increases royal jelly production. A moment again, I mentioned number three, which is the Dufer's gland pheromone. Dufer's gland, also called the alkaline gland, occurs only in females, queens and workers, and it's absent in drones. Hmm, Kevin moment. I... Earlier I talked about different castes using pheromones in a common manner. Here's a good example of that. Queen are one caste and worker are another. They share the same equipment, the doofers gland, but use them for communication within their lane. I thought I'd call that out as an example to clarify what I was trying to explain before. End of Kevin moment. So ironically enough, it seems they're not 100% sure what this doofers gland is for. And I'm going to share a couple of the ideas that they have about this. The first one is the secretion contains an egg marking pheromone, which has allowed discrimination between queen and worker eggs. The secretion provides protection for coating, a protective coating, sorry, for eggs. It's used as an adhesive, which eggs are attached to the bottom of the comb cell. This in particular is disputed in some literature directly contradict the notion that there is any egg coating or egg marking going on at all from the Dufer's gland. I said they weren't 100% sure on this particular gland, and this appears to be, this egg coating theory, one of the more disputed things. 
in the beginning, the Dufer's gland was thought to be the yang to the yang of the sting gland, which is alongside this gland in the location of the anatomy of the bee. So original scientists, researchers erroneously called this the alkaline gland, and they thought that the excretion mixed with the acidic compound of the sting, but in time this was proven to be incorrect. That being said, there's still some that think that it could release some form of sting lubricant, but again, they're not sure about this either. So while the dufer's gland is associated with the sting apparatus in honeybees due to its proximity, the better guess is it has no role in the stinging or venom production of the bee. So one thing they are sure of is that the secretion from this gland is present on worker-laid eggs, queen-laid eggs, and on the walls of the genital chamber and on the tip of the queen's abdomen. And you see bees sometimes in the posterior region of the queen, this could potentially have a, a impact of that. So this secretion is attractive to workers can, and can be part of that retinue response that draws all the bees in the queen's court to form around the queens. And in some cases, laying workers. That's interesting. The fourth one I want to talk about is the Nazanov pheromone. It's one of the more common worker pheromones. This pheromone is emitted by worker bees and used for orientation. It's common to you and I as a beekeeper if you've been doing this at any period of time because it's easy to observe the bees with their abdomens up in the air in a number of hive activities. Put a new package in, a lot of the bees around the hive will be up signaling to the bees in the air with their Nazanov gland. Number five of six to cover is the forager pheromone. This pheromone is released by older forager bees to slow the maturing of nurse bees. Again, something I didn't know about until I started looking at this. This is an example of a primer pheromone. It acts to it acts as a distributed regulator to keep the ratio of nurse bees to forager bees in the balance that's most beneficial to the hive. My understanding of this is if there's enough forager bees releasing this, the nurse bees remain nurse bees. I've always said that the way that a nurse bee grows to become a forager bee is it's in that receiving mode when enough receivers don't come back, they press themselves into service. The fact of the matter is, here you see evidence of a chemical system that allows that to be controlled. So one more worker one for us to cover, it's the wax gland and comb pheromone. It should need little description that this is the wax-making gland and it releases a chemical scent. So we've covered queen and worker pheromones. One more area, one more cast to speak of, it's the drone pheromones. This is really, really simple. Drones also produce a pheromone that attracts other flying drones to promote a drone congregation area at sites suitable for mating with virgin queens. So we've covered all the primary cast pheromones. I would say that this is probably, in the lore of pheromones, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to pheromone discussions. And there's a lot more to know, but it gives you a good sense of what they are, how they're used, 
and how they play a role in bees operating as one large unit and that communication, nonverbal communication, that is scent-based management of a colony. I have one last tidbit to share about pheromones, and it has to do with queen pheromones and the ability to rule over a colony. Queen mandibular pheromones are made up of a large set of pheromones, but two of the primary chemicals in them are 9-ODA, the number 9, and the number 9 HAD, 9-HAD. These are referred as the queen substance. Like I shared earlier, these inhibit ovarian development, attract drones, and signal that the queen is present. An important aspect of this set of pheromone is that as the queen ages, her ability to produce these chemicals dwindles, and that could lead to swarm and queen replacement activities. It's a form of communication in a different manner altogether. So pheromones, a fascinating system at a macro level, and while we can sense the world through smell as humans, it has a whole different meaning for bees. Segment number two, this one's called Musing Over Springtime Pollen. I, like every other run-of-the-mill beekeeper, look around each year and watch what people do. And I have the fortune to have been doing this for a little while, so I see how it turns out for them. In the beginning, and as you know if you've been a follower, I had to continue on my own personal notions about how to keep bees. It's just my nature. There is that old adage that says, how's that working out for you? <laughs> so having the benefit of a number of years under my belt, I started in the spring of 2008, for those who are wondering, and being in the position to have a lot of contact with others, some of my influences have swayed to a more upstream approach for beekeeping in this region. This is unappealing to some of my listeners, I am aware, who wish the more natural route was the path I chose. And I've been somewhat swinging to the dark side in their minds, but I've been there and done that to some extent, especially when it comes to feeding. I was adamantly against feeding and wanted to believe that nature would provide. I've come to believe through literally direct experience with not feeding the bees and seeing them not do well that this novel notion that nature will provide is not necessarily true. Now I am well aware that there are others out there that are not feeding, not treating, just doing their thing and they are doing fine by that. And I've been exploring that notion recently and had a thought I don't want to call it an epiphany. I don't know if it's that strong, but a thought. It was spurred on recently by a podcast that I listened to called Gastropod. It's a good one if you're a foodie and like the things about the food and culture. I simply want to give credit to the idea of one of their episodes of what America would be like if we had a different relationship with food. I recently saw a video about wolves being reintroduced into Yellowstone and the impact. I think I posted that to Facebook somewhere of the environment simply by changing one of those dynamics and reducing the deer as the primary example and what it meant for the trees and the fauna and the other things that rely upon the ecosystem as it's ever related. To that notion, we have around 100 to 200 produce style products 
on average in our supermarkets. But in this episode of Gastropod, they explored the fact that when the settlers arrived here, there is and continues to be thousands of edible plants that humans could consume. The forage and fauna of this nation is abundant and diverse, but I've come to see that the environment around me is less than natural than I once considered. And if you think about the landscape as you fly over and look down upon the United States, you could see that almost every inch of this great nation is manicured and influenced by man's touch. Now, don't get me wrong, where I live is not the Jersey Turnpike. It's idyllic rolling hills with farms and mature woods. But it's not the panacea for bees that I once thought it was. Manicured farms with monocrops on 30 to 50 acre swaths are the norm around here. Manicured lawns and managed right-of-ways. Road margins that are sprayed, cut back, devoid. And fields of corn soybean hay that are planted edge to edge without borders. In the gastropod, they talk about how wheat, corn, soybean dominate the landscape in the United States and how that has changed our diversity in our market and our nutrition and all of the other things that go along with it. So while I live in an idyllic area and it looks very nice, it's not the land of our forefathers. Can you only imagine if you could rewind the clock what it would have looked like when the settlers arrived? In my estimation, what I describe probably sums up most of agricultural New Jersey. And this is how I rationalize that some can make this work, no feeding, no treatments, no whatever, and others cannot. Perhaps the plant diversity and interference by mankind in some ways is different depending on the region you live, and all beekeeping is local. If you hearken back to the U.S. settlement, we settled on the East Coast and we spread South and West. We New Jerseyans have been here and interfered with every nuance of our land, and dare I say more so, all of the Americans on the East Coast. And New Jersey, as you know, is in the swath of the triumvirate of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, I suspect what we've done to our landscape in the tri-state region is to reshape and, sorry mankind, screw it up. And what we've done is more detrimental than what has taken place in the rolling hills of Indiana or Nebraska or some other place. Simply ride the New Jersey transit line to New York City out of Trenton, something I did last week, and you will see man's impact to the land. So going back to what other successful beekeepers are doing in my area, I think some of what they do compensates for the reality of the place that we live. I somewhat see the wisdom of feeding bees. I see the wisdom of treating. And in the case of this segment, I see the wisdom of feeding pollen. I don't like it. I'd be the first one to admit it. I don't like it. I want the scenario where my bees can live off the land, but my Recognition of late is abundant access to nutritional resources, even if provided by us, cures a lot of ills and keeps colonies going. So that brings me to the notion of this segment, and it's the consideration of feeding pollen substitutes in the spring for colony buildup. I've never done it, not once have I done this before. 
If you're a long-time listener, you know that, I've said, and still believe this is true, that our bees have access to pollen all year long here. The question is, in my years of experience, is that statement all that it's cracked up to be or a mask to something that could be making a difference in the strength of my colonies? I bemoan the fact that year after year I wish I could get better starts in the spring and I see others feeding pollen patties and always said, yeah, good for them. And while I don't disparage those who were doing the practice, I always considered it redundant, maybe wasteful and perhaps a bit of overdoing it by zealous beekeepers. I wouldn't scoff at the idea back then, but I didn't really feel it was a necessary practice. But every year I looked at my practices and consider options, and perhaps this has been forecast in some of my comments recently, but now... I'm at that period of the year where I always take a fresh look at how I do things, even practices that I've walked away from, are open, and I'm reconsidering trying this. As it is with so many things in life, there's usually something that triggers that response. There's times you come upon the notion to do something and it harkens back to some exposure you received in an inadvertent way or through some subliminal aha moment. As a matter of course, I post things that Tim Schuler sends me occasionally, and I can actually trace this particular thread, notion, back to a video from last year he had where he was feeding his bees dry pollen. It was March, and what I know from having visited Tim at his house is he's in the Pinelands, and his foraging situation is unique to what I was describing earlier. He doesn't live in rolling hills. He lives in the middle of Pine Barren Forest. But it made an impression watching that video. And this is how it happens. Hmm. Interesting. Tim feeds pollen. I never do. Why is that? Why is he doing that thing I don't do? Do I know of anybody else doing that? Hmm. Yes, I do. Beekeeper X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C are also feeding pollen patties. They've told me so. You know, as I think back, each of these beekeepers, X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C, are doing well year after year with minimal losses, and they are feeding pollen in the spring for buildup and providing sugar solutions if it's necessary in the fall to ensure bees have enough food Oh yeah, and several of them are treating too. On the flip side, as president of an organization of 150-ish members, I hear the stories of beekeepers who struggle. Some I can immediately diagnose because I know from what they tell me. Varroa got them, or they didn't feed and their bees went hungry. It doesn't take long for one to recognize some of the elements that make beekeepers successful and especially the elements where others are going wrong in their ways. If you do what you always do, you'll always get what you always got, right? And I've not had a good run lately in the last couple springs, so I am honestly knowing that I need to change something up. Last year I fed my bees in the fall and treated for mites. I did it with a little more discipline. My hives so far seem in pretty good shape given the more conventional approach. Now, I'll be the first to admit that when it comes to the mite treatments, I didn't follow the convention, conventional wisdom of treating several times a year, which is what you're hearing out of the Be Informed Partnership, 
And I probably even pushed the envelope a little bit for being late into the treatment window, treat your bees in July and August. But I was within tolerances. I wasn't delinquent. I didn't do it in September. You know, to that notion, recently it came across an article in uh, old bee bee culture magazine that New Jersey, Tim Schuler, Janet Katz, and some others published. And Tim echoes his sentiment that he shares quite often is that those who treated in July have a better result than those who waited till August, and clearly a better result than to those who waited in September. And because I was intolerant and, and fed my bees, I hope that my bees will be viable and actually stronger than they have been for a number of seasons coming out of spring. It's been a long while since I've had really good, healthy colonies coming out into spring. And I'm ready for that to change and am willing to make the changes that it takes to get to that. So where I'm at, knowing from reading bee culture, lectures at ABF conference, EAS conference on nutrition. Nutrition is absolutely pivotal. And I'm thinking of feeding pollen in the spring for colony buildup. It sounded like a pretty darn good idea. That non-metal voice in my head is telling me all the practical reasons why this is evil. Natural pollen is better. It's too expensive. This is a waste of time and money and resources. Yet the experimental side of me is saying, you know, If you never try this, engage it for yourself as to whether it's a viable practice or not, then you'll never know. If you know me, a side little thing about my personality, I also have a Kevin moment about these things not related to beekeeping and the health of the colony, but I just simply want to try making poly patties and would enjoy making a video to share on the experience. So I have that going for me too. All right, listen, I didn't set out in this segment to go into the philosophical reasons for feeding pollen patties. My original notion was to share why pollen is important and the idea of feeding it in the spring is something people do for the reasons I'm about to tell you. That being said, one of the things that I hope you appreciate about this documentation, which was actually the charter of this podcast, the documentation of my journey is that I'm not abashed in sharing my reasoning and perhaps It's a rationalization, but I'm betting that many of you are passionate about bees and you have these internal sessions in your own minds where you're talking to yourself about strategies. I wanted you to know that you're not alone and it's perfectly normal. (laughs) For those of you that don't dwell on this stuff, you go, Kevin, please get on. All right, let me get on with it. I'm done. Let me get to the practical side of supplemental pollen beekeeping. So pollen is such an important aspect in the health of a colony as bees depend upon it for proteins, lipids, vitamins, sterols, fats, and minerals. There are a number of amino acids that bees require for maximum development. I've seen over and over again the number is 10 and they go through what they are. I don't think that's important in this discussion. Just that in certain situations, and from what I know, especially in the spring when plants are not ready, bees will collect alternate sources of nutrition or materials, that's what they need, that have minerals and other components in them for their use. So there is a need here that bees are out doing empty foraging. Some of them you'll see collecting dust from feed bags if you're near a farm, visiting crumbs from leftover bird feeders, taking powders from odd things that you would not think would be a value of them, um, dust from construction materials as an example. 
you know, as we know from winter bees, they can live an extended period of time on carbohydrates, but eventually they cannot go without proteins. Workers, drones, and the queen, including the larvae and the forager, have to have pollen brought back to the hive for food for both direct consumption and to make brood food to transfer to the developing bees and the queen. Without pollen, brood rearing suffers as larvae will not develop properly and could be stunted in growth, they could be underweight, and they could be underdeveloped. If a bee is not provided the right nutrition at the right time, it could result in undeveloped hypopharyngeal glands and ovaries, as an example. And we just know that, you know, it's a main staple, both carbohydrate and protein. So I want to talk about pollen substitutes versus real pollen. When, you know, this, this harkens back to feeding sugar solutions versus honey and or real nectar. It's the comparison in that manner. So when talking about the impacts of feeding pollen to bees, you have to consider the pros and cons. I have to start by saying that I have yet to encounter a research paper, an article, a bee source forum, anything like that, that says feeding bees artificial pollen substitutes will bring a colony down. Just haven't seen it. And I'll also tell you that these supplemental and substitute formulations are not equivalent to the real thing. So let's not be deterred by that. There's some claims out there that some of the products on the markets are as good or equivalent, but... In my personal opinion, and this is my opinion, nothing can replace what nature can provide, ever. It's a fundamental belief, and you might consider it when, you know, going to your strategies of feeding bees. That being said, you know, I've been stewing on this for a long while. And in in time, in the past, I've been looking over the last few seasons for tidbits of whether this was a good practice or not. And actually, some of what I'm going to share you here is stuff that I've been hoarding and collecting on this factoids, comments, research snippets, and it just gives a simple background on this particular topic, spring pollen feeding. So I'll be quoting some information from a 2010 study released in the journal Apidology, some information from a Clarence Collison column in bee culture that I know of, and other resources I've collected along the way. By the way, Kevin Moment. Clarence Collison, I read his column first every time I get a bee culture in my hand. I'm a huge fan of Clarence's work. Someday I hope to thank him, meet him personally for all the enlightenment that he had. Yeah, definitely a good read. If you don't, if you skip those because they're too techy, I implore you to go back and change your strategy. You really should read them if you're getting that magazine. So from the 2010 journal Apidology study called Nutrition and Health in Honeybees, I'll focus on the insights of bee proteins and other nutrients to get us started, and specifically they're about pollen. That particular article had things on carbohydrates and other things, but I'm going to focus on proteins. I've cleaned some of this up just for being able to relay it to you, but most of the thoughts and observations are directly from the paper. I'm just repeating them. So we'll start off with a quote. Pollen in the colony, the kind brought in from nature, is used in this way. Honeybees mix pollen with regurgitated nectar, honey, and glandular secretions to produce bee bread, 
which differs from freshly collected pollen in having a lower pH and less starch. The nutritive value of bee bread to honeybees is higher than that of fresh bee-collected, laboratory-stored, or frozen pollen, with few exceptions. My comments. On malnourished colonies, they had to say this, quote, Colonies without pollen supply maintain brood-rearing for only a short time, first by using up the stored bee bread, and later by depleting their body reserves. Honeybees have developed a mechanism to react to changes in the ratio of pollen supply and protein demand of brood. They cannibalize brood and thereby gain protein, which they use to feed other larvae. Young larvae, in which little investment has been made up to that point, are cannibalized and older larvae are maintained. If the pollen dearth continues, no more brood can be produced." So this is what goes on in colonies that are not well-nourished in the spring. Two things have been observed when colony larvae, the lifeblood of any colony, is malnourished. The first observation is colonies terminate brood-rearing rather than producing malnourished pupae. And the second thing is malnourished larvae are reared into adults with impaired quality. These two are in opposition to each other, and that's not a mistake. Some researchers observed condition number one, brood termination, and others observed condition two, impaired quality adults. My guess is that second colony was so desperate that they'll take anything that they can rear, but it's probably not good karma for them. So it goes without saying that it's better to feed supplemental proteins to colonies that do not have adequate stores from nature But what about simply feeding them for the beneficial reasons to the beekeeper? What would be the impact of that? The research paper goes on to say, quote, Protein-rich diets may be fed to honeybee colonies to enhance colony growth in spring, in times of low or single-source pollen income, or in periods in which only poor-quality pollens are available, end quote. So the takeaway from these comments is, or the way that I'm reading them is, if your hive did not have good pollen stores or whatever going into winter, or they're in there for an extended period of time, they're not able to get out and forage, they're stuck in a single-source environment, feeding pollen patties is not as, not necessarily evil. So to keep going on the topic, I want to share a short distinguishing factor for the differences between pollen supplements versus pollen substitutes. It's my loose definition, but it suffices for the insights I'm about to share. Pollen supplements are high-protein mixtures that contain some pollen. They have pollen in them. Pollen substitutes are high-protein diets but contain no pollen. They are supplemented with things like protein from soybeans, brewer's yeast, dehydrated milk, or even algae. These things are not pollen, so it should be no surprise that they cannot be considered for a complete replacement for natural pollens, but they do have their uses, as I'm about to discuss. I'm going to move on to other sources beyond that research paper, but there was one other nugget of wisdom in there that I wanted to share. They said pollen substitutes may be a more cost-effective alternative to feeding pollen, but feeding pollen from other colonies incurs the risks of spreading pathogens, 
My advice if you are feeding real pollen as part of your patty recipe is to get it from someone else and make sure it's sourced from a reputable supplier, somebody like Brushy Mountain or another bee supply house. Really, you want to make sure that the pollen you're using is coming from a trusted source. Don't buy things over the internet that you cannot figure out whether they're reputable or not. So another thing in that that paper, the last tidbit, was how do you know if pollen patties are working or if you should add real pollen to the patty? Is that necessary? The research paper says, Consumption is a good first indication, indication of the acceptance of supplemental diets. Pollen or lipids from pollen-containing diets are consumed more readily than other substitutes due to phagostimulants in pollen. The shorter answer is, if you can't get them to eat it, add pollen to it, and you might be better off. I have another tip for this in a second. So we simply take this to mean that if they consume your substitute readily, real pollen included or not, then you're on the right track. And it harkens me back to a recent episode that you could sweeten your non-pollen substitutes and make it more attractive. The knock-on early commercial pollen patties that they were nothing but glorified sugar patties. And of course the bees would eat that, but it wasn't very nutritional. Truth be told, I think those notions have run their course. And I've seen one suggestion to add anise to the mix. Anise, that licorice smelling liquid, is the thing we said recently in one of our episodes. It's one of the more potent attractant to bees. So if you have a pollen substitute and you don't have fresh pollen to add, give a little touch of anise. That was the tip I was alluding to. Okay, springtime feeding, what are the benefits? I'm going to go through the summaries of some of the points from Clarence Collison's article in the April 2014 edition of Bee Culture. Simply, the byline starts us off with, quote, The use of a pollen substitute in the spring is recommended for packages nucleus colonies and splits for the increased production of bees and honey, end quote. That's a good way to get it started off. In the body of the feature, there was a study quoted where they indicated that columns supplemented with pollen substitute, quote, started rearing brood earlier than colonies and other treatment groups, end quote. And it notes in some cases that they, quote, saw additional honey yields and that packages that were fed pollen substitutes upon installation in the spring were more productive than package colonies that were not. So that probably leads to that opening statement. We've been talking about what pollen does for the bees, but what's the impact if they don't consume the needed proteins that are not available The impacts are many, but I'll give you a taste of three of them just so you can wrap your head around it. The first one, if young workers do not consume needed proteins, they will have brood food glands that will not develop completely. Their royal jelly will not support normal growth and development of larvae, and they will not support egg production in the queen. So it's not hard to imagine that like humans, malnourished bees are not going to fare very well. Okay, let's move this along. Let's talk or explore what's in a patty that you might make at home. Typical ingredients include soybean flour, brewer's yeast, sugar, water, anise, other potential ingredients that make these homemade pollen patties. 
You can find a number of recipes that you can mix up at home, and I'll give you a recipe in a minute or so. Some consider adding other add-ins, essential oils, and they experiment with um, tea and, you know, herbs and other things. Beekeepers are rather inventive. So many of you are resourceful enough to make their own at home, but some of you are simply just not going to do this and want to know about, well, what about the ones I could buy from a supplier? The question you'll ask are, are commercial products as good as or viable in lieu of real pollen? For that, I'll relay some insights from a chart from Randy Oliver's scientificbeekeeping.com. Randy did a comparative test of commercially available products in contrast to natural pollen and a control and found that Ultra B, ML Bulk, Mega B, and the B Pro brand outperformed homebrew formula in simple yeast. From what I gleaned, two of them, ML and Ultra B, actually were viably on part with the natural pollen controls he used for the experiment. Now, hold on. One experiment does not, finding does not make a compelling result. It's never good form to provide the punchline of a research article like I just did without the context of what was behind the conclusion. And for Randy's sake, I'm sure he would want me to tell you to read the whole supplemental information about how he conducted his research so you can take my wanton summary and context. And no, he's not a show for ML or Ultra B or B Pro or Mega B or any of these other ones. He didn't get any support from them. So I wholly support the notion and ask you to go there and read his research. I'm simply going to say that from what I know and have seen and what I read on his study is that commercial products have come a long way from that sugar knock that I mentioned a couple moments ago and are a viable route if you wanted to avoid getting the KitchenAid mixer out and having a go out of it in your own kitchen. So all of this has been well and good, but let's get back to the fundamental question. Feeding pollen patties in the spring, should you do it? If the weather is bad in early spring and they can't forage, if the bees didn't have a good source of pollen for winter reserves, and simply if you want to give them a good start, yes, I think there's a merit to the practice, given what I've read. Will the bees suffer a catastrophic loss if you don't? No, bees are pretty resilient and good times are ahead in the spring. But if you supplemented them and they had a better shot at creating a good workforce and were healthier and not malnourished after a harsh winter, what's not to love? They would be able to take advantage of spring's bounty in a more meaningful way and they would likely come out as a stronger colony in the long run. So pollen patties, when considering the overall cost of a hive investment, are a relatively small investment with, I think, a significant potential for a reasonable return value. Wow, that sounded like Kramer in a financial. (laughs) I think if you propped up the colony with pollen patties and they had a greater workforce, that workforce in a strong spring will be rotated out by summer. And your colony going into fall will be living off the real pollen from nature that the jumpstart allowed them to collect in abundance. So did you follow that? I don't. You gave them a supplement. That round of bees lived on the supplement, but they made multiple, multiple, multiple babies 
who went out and foraged and everybody else got fed real pollen. At the end of the day, you cycled out anybody that you fed artificially and everybody else has been really, really done well on the regular pollen. In a nutshell, I find that concept somewhat appealing. So what path am I going to take in 2016? You can't accuse me of being a shill for the pollen paddy companies because, in fact, I've never bought any of these commercial products. And I personally am going to make my own. Now, I say that now. Someday I might find that I am way too time pressured and I'll sneak over and buy some. But, you know, spring has a way of sneaking up on you. But for right now, my plan is in the next couple of weeks to figure out where the ingredients are and make it and shoot that video I've been longing to do. So before I move on from this segment, I promised I'd give you a simple pollen patty recipe. Here it is. To make your own mix, this is for a single pollen patty. You can up the ante if you want to make more by just multiplying it. Two ounces of fresh pollen, 5.5 ounces of water. These are all by weight. 10.5 ounces of sugar. Six ounces of soybean flour. Soybean flour, I'm told, is available at your local Mega Mart in the baking aisle. So think about it. It's six ounces of soybean flour mixed with two to one water and a little bit of pollen. That's pretty much a pollen patty. There are many, many recipes out on the internet for patties. And it could be noted that several of them include the ingredient nonfat dry milk and differ from the one I just gave you, which came from Clarence Collison. They also come in different formulations if you're making one, five, or a hundred. Just research pollen patty recipes You'll find many, many resources. There is one tip, however, about making these if you're going to go off and follow my recipe. When making them, make them large and thin with more surface area as non-soy-based pollen substitute or pollen-only patties are consumed more readily when the surface area is enlarged. I hope you found this interesting. I, I was really excited to bring this in and get this going here. I'm curious what your opinions are, whether you're doing the practice. You could send a note and let me know if you have anything to add or detract from this. This segment was a little dash of this and a little dash of that, not one of my more structured reports, but I think I gave enough flavor on the topic to give you a reasonable understanding, and maybe it'll inspire you to look into it further. Chances are you'll be hearing about my experience with this in my own colonies this year, as I'm confident I'm probably going there, and I'll keep you posted on my results. So one last little thing I found that I wanted to share, not related to all that we talked to, but maybe smidge to what we just spoke about a second ago, and it has to do with, if this is good for the spring, why not for the fall? The interesting finding on this, I think this was in a bee culture, I don't remember where I sourced this, but it said supplementation in fall extends brood rearing before winter but it does not facilitate wintering of fall reared bees consequently fall supplemented colonies did not perform better in the spring so while this seems like it's a good idea for spring ramp up not a good idea to try and get spring ramp up by feeding ahead in the fall so we see we've crossed the hour mark as Usually the time frame that I like to tidy things up and close the episode down. But here I am entering the back of the book, going into the roundtables. 
I have a couple of uh, odds and ends here segments. So let me go ahead and get started and we'll see if we can run through these relatively quickly and get you on your way. First one is called Be Thinking. I saw a teaser about a uh, TV show coverage of a beekeeping segment on Shark Tank. To be clear, it wasn't on Shark Tank, but a new show called Beyond the Tank, which is a derivative of that show. And apparently this was the first episode of that new program. Segment two of the show featured Matt Reap, who owns the Bee Thinking Company. It's an urban beekeeping business selling hives, bees, providing training and other insights. It appears, but I didn't see this, that he was on season six but didn't get a deal. I'm guessing because he asked for too much money or couldn't work something out. That's not relevant. What is relevant is Damon John, one of the sharks, has since become a customer of his. And the segment started with the dynamics of with Matt from the business visiting one of the sharks from Shark Tank, Damon John, in his house in New York City to get him set up. Damon had a large apiary of 20 hives behind an electric fence in the shot and he had his neighbor helping him out about it. Matt came to Damon's apiary and saw his hive equipment set up on the farm. And there was a lot of themes about saving the planets and so on. It was cool to see Damon so jazzed up about it. And the inspection of the top bar hive that they did was a highlight. It's clear that Damon was kind of enamored as an owner, but didn't seem too hands-on. At least that's what I took from it. The middle of the segment had the owner and Shark having a heart-to-heart about the faux pas of asking for too much money. And you had to be hoping that he was going to break through and strike a deal while he was there with him. It reminds me that some of our well-known bee companies make significant funds, Brushy Mound, Man Lake, and others. And make no mistake, they're large companies and several of the bigger guys do millions of dollars. So you had to wonder if that's where this thing was going to go. The owner of beekeeping seemed to think he had a good brand. And while Damon didn't strike up a deal, it sure seemed he was willing to offer advice And that's where he left it. No deals in the bargain, even in the second run. If anything, any promotion is good promotion. And this double promotion for the Bee Thinking Company had to help his bottom line and affiliations with people as powerful as the Sharks. Good for him. Here's hoping he's successful. And congrats to he and his wife on her new child, which was brought up in the episode. You could check them out at the web. They build themselves as the world's first beekeeping supplier specializing in foundationless top bar hives, ware hives, and cedar Langstroth hives. Their hive products are crafted at a mill in Portland and they use a kiln-dried western red cedar from the Pacific Northwest. Pretty good story. Bethinking.com is their website. Round table number two, Federation of Irish Beekeepers Association Beekeeping Book Index. Recently, I was looking up a resource and in doing so came across a beekeeping resource library found at the Federation of Irish Beekeepers Association website. So its purpose is to serve as a menu for their members to know what is on hand But I thought it was simply an interesting collection of beekeeping titles that one might consider. The page had a list of some hundred plus books, DVDs, and they even have a presentation library that can be provided on loan, complete with explanatory notes to any members who are doing presentations in public. That's a pretty cool resource. 
As an aside and as a president of a beekeepers association, I can envy such a resource, but I could also see the headaches in maintaining it. And I often say, I'm not that ambitious at times. Good enough is perfect. My recommendation to you, if you're an association considering this idea, is you need an appointed librarian that's going to track all the wares and be passionate, dogmatic about keeping tabs on things. And of course, a people person, because you're going to deal with a lot of people trying to get access to this stuff. I'll provide a link in the show notes where you could take a look at that book list if it's interesting. Moving right along, roundtable number three, corn syrup ingredients in beekeeping candy. Last year about this time, I produced a video on how to make fondant for bees. It's a recipe that has been handed down from beekeeper to beekeeper, and actually it was Bob Kloss who was kind enough to share it with me. In the recipe, I used Caro brand syrup as part of the ingredient list, and I know from watching the television show Good Eats with Alton Brown that it plays a role in the recipe and is used to keep foods soft in texture, add volume, prevent crystallization of sugar, which is actually what we're using it for because we want something that keeps our fondant soft and pliable. The question is, what is high fructose corn syrup and how is it different from regular corn syrup? Corn syrup is distinct from high fructose corn syrup as HCFS is created when corn syrup undergoes enzymatic processing that produces a sweeter compound containing higher levels of fructose. From the CARO website, FAQ, on whether CARO is HFCS, High fructose corn syrup starts with regular corn syrup, which is modified by further processing and treating with enzymes to break it into two different forms of sweeteners, fructose and glucose. In contrast, corn syrup is a sweetener derived from fresh corn picked and processed at the peak for flavor and sweetness. This is the ingredient in caro corn syrups used for baking. Caro light, caro dark, caro light, reduced calorie. My bottle that I have in my pantry indicates literally on the label that there is no high fructose corn syrup in it. So why is this important? Because when you cook high fructose corn syrup or you leave it in heat, it creates a derivative that is poisonous to bees. Maybe I should have said that first, but this is the whole point. Want to use caro syrup? It's fine. It's good. You want to see the video for preparing fondant for bees since it's that time of year? Take a look at our show notes or go look at the video section of our website. So the takeaway here is corn syrup is A-OK to use in your candy sugar recipes, especially the caro brand. It is not the same thing, and there's no problem with heating it. Roundtable number four, this one's entitled Bee Space. I got the book Natural Beekeeping with the Were Hive by David Heath from Santa this year and have been reading it over the last couple of weeks. Actually, I read the whole thing in one sitting during the Christmas break, but now over the past few weeks, I've been going back to study the finer points that interest me. I find little things stick in my mind. For example, one of the pieces of equipment that they have for a Were Hive helps you to cut the combs that become bound when bees fuse them to the top bars of the box below. 
It's okay, not too exciting. But actually, this becomes an interesting notion if you go back to another factoid that I know about Lorenzo Langstroth. It struck me making the connection that this is the actual problem that led to the discovery of B-Space. Around 1951, the hive that he was using was the Bevan hive. And it allowed the cover to rest flat on the bars and the bees would cement it together with propolis. Anytime Lorenzo wanted to remove the cover, he had to cut it off, cut it free. Sound familiar? He experimented and found that if he recessed the bars lower than the roof, the bees would not glue it together and such bee space was invented. Now it's odd, but he didn't draw the same conclusion for the full hive until a later date. It is noted from his documentation that sometimes later he scrawled, quote, disagreeable necessity of cutting the attachments of the comb from the wall of the hive, end quote, was a difficulty for him. And it had an epiphany one day while standing out in the yard that B-space for the roof would apply to B-space to the sides of the hive, changed his configuration, and thus the Langstroth dimensions were born. I thought it was really cool to make that connection. Roundtable number five, this one's called Shrewd. It's obvious bees die in the winter. They die all year long, and it becomes more evident when there is snow on the ground as you'll see them around on the snow. A lot of times when they fall down in the grass on the dirt, you don't notice it. And while it's cited often that during an active forage period, you could lose up to a 1,000 bees a day foraging, In the winter, the number, of course, is much lower and not overly visible to the beekeeper, that is, until it snows. When it snows, you might see dead bees on the snow in front of the hive, and only a few of them look like a massacre. So it's a good notion, given it snowed a lot for us last week in the U.S., not to despair. Actually, seeing dead bees on the snow often means the the hive is still alive because somebody has to fly out and die. So you'll see these bees, and upon examination, you can tell a fresh dead bee from one that's been expired for a while. And you'll notice that time and again, long expired ones are very desiccated, dried out. Fresh ones look like they just are sleeping. It's likely undertakers taking the dead bees out of the hive, and during the winter they don't fly too far. And because of the snow, it's simply more evident to you when you go visit your hives. So there's one other condition to consider when inspecting the expired bees laying around. And it has to do with dead bees that are not intact. There you might suspect something else. It's not normal for undertakers to have to take body parts out and decapitated bees. And it could be something else noshing on your bees for the nourishing protein. So I said before, I saw a lot of uh, footprints at my hives. This is of concern to me, but maybe it's something like a skunk scratching at the hive and drawing the foragers out or the guard bees out and chomping on them. Or maybe it's a shrew chomping down. So shrews do not hibernate in the winter, and it's possible that they can attempt to make entry into a hive. What's interesting is, They undergo morphological changes that can drastically alter their body weight loss from 30 to 50%, shrinking the size of their bones, skull, and internal organs. 
How about that? That's an interesting thing on its own. But 50% smaller than normal. What does that mean to you, the beekeeper? Well, they can get into smaller spaces, maybe even smaller than a mouse guards that you thought could do the trick. So some people I know use half-inch mesh for their entrance reducers. And given what I just shared, it's probably not going to do the trick. What they say is three-eighths and probably smaller is enough. But you have to give some thought if you're finding bees consumed on the landing boards or snow out front, that if they're chomped up, you got to look for the telltale footprints. And you might even want to look in on the bottom board to see if you have a shrew hiding back in the corner. Roundtable number six, last one. Insulation Expedition. In a recent episode, I spoke of my inability to fit insulation board into my vehicle when at a local Home Depot, and it dissuaded me from keeping from uh, completing my tasks. Listener Eric Brown wrote in about his chronicles with a similar plight he had, and he was ever more challenged to fit it in his vehicle because his panels would not fit in his Toyota Prius. So smarter than me, he had the forethought to return to the store and purchase a utility knife and something to measure it with. And he was able to perform surgery in the parking lot and cut his panels into bite-sized pieces, which he was able to tuck inside. I did have to admit that contemplated, I contemplated that notion while I was standing in the parking lot that day, but had to abandon it, as I had another commitment to get to and I couldn't actually do that. I did ask the people in the store to cut it, and like him, he relayed uh, this in his message to me. Store is hesitant to cut that stuff on a panel saw because it makes dust, and it's probably not good to breathe with, but they just didn't want the debris all over the place. And sadly, I haven't had the chance to get back to the task. So anyway, Eric wrote of his adventure in his blog, Bees with EEB. It's a great little piece that talks about his adventure of using the foam for hive top insulations. He's got pictures of his outcomes over his Langstoth and top bar hives, and they look pretty spiffy. I noticed, Eric, in your recent posts that you too picked up on the Broodminder, and he has some screens of his hive monitoring results from Mars. No, not the planet. All of his hives are named after planets, which I think is really cool. So you can follow Eric in all of his exploits at his blog. It's bewitheeb.wordpress.com. He's been writing pretty regularly, I see. And we have a link to his blog and the article for the insulation adventure on our website. Check those out. Thanks, Eric, for writing in. We really appreciate it. So, wow, that feels like a little bit of a race. Maybe I sped too much through it, but uh, we're here at the finish. There's so many things going on around here and, more importantly, coming up in the world of beekeeping for us. Next weekend, if plans hold true, Bob Kloss and I are planning to attend the 6th Annual Beekeeping Symposium at Temple University in Philadelphia. Speaking of Philadelphia, I recently posted on our on my page a photo of me at the Langstroth marker on Front Street. It was a mini pilgrimage of sorts in Philly while I was there in the city for a mobile app showcase for work at the International Immuno-Oncology Network Symposium. The following weekend, 
is the NJBA Winter Meeting in Hamilton. The 27th of February is our first NWNJBA Meeting of the Year. And we're currently actively trying to find a speaker for NWNJBA second run at hosting the NJBA Spring Meeting around April 23rd, 23rd of this year. I'm also excited to share that I'll be presenting at the EAS conference in New Jersey this summer at Stockton State College. I've been asked to present something on the Gadget Garage, and I need to circle back to see with Bob if he's game to co-present should be he, should he be attending. Last I spoke to him, he was entertaining the idea of going, but hadn't locked in yet. And Bob, I know you're listening. If we didn't speak about this yet, let me know. <laughs> Yes, lots going on, and I'm jazzed as ever for the beekeeping season right around the corner. I'm going to shut down now and step into my basement to prep a waray hive this afternoon that I've not taken the wraps off of yet, and I'll let you know how that goes next time we meet. And I also, in our next episode, will share some insights on some bait hives that Bob Kloss and I built a few weeks ago. All cool stuff. Yes, beekeeping is in the air, and I'm flying off to my next adventure, so time to go. But before I go, as always, I'll leave you with this. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, and be well, everyone.